why did you need to create a new microphone? Because everything out there is subpar. <laughs> and most people use it because of ego. It's time for another episode of The Interview. This is a very special show for me because what you're hearing is a little concert that uh, I just got the pleasure of having over the interweb with my guest today. This is someone that I have followed for many years. The only microphones that run in the Wyoming Podcast Studio are Heil microphones. And what you're listening to is the one, the only, legendary Bob Heil. HeilSound.com is the website for Bob. He was so gracious to come on to talk about microphones, which me, the geek, the sound engineer that I am, this is right up my alley. So I'm excited. Uh, I've been looking forward to this. And so without further ado, uh, let's jump right into this uh, chat with Bob Heil. Welcome. Thank you for taking the time and sitting down with me to do this. Well, yeah, thanks a lot. It's uh, it's nice to be with you and uh, share some thoughts about uh, what's uh, happening these days. I'm, I'm really <laughs> happy that uh, everything's going well for you guys. We'll get through all of this uh, COVID situation while we're going to be ready to really rock and roll. No kidding. In March of 2020, you guys announced a new vocal mic the pr37 is that yes. out now yep it's right here so how does that compare to the 35 because i absolutely love that thing the 35 is one of my favorite vocal mics out there for female vocals for sure he's changing my plug it in there it is <laughs> there we go not much uh thing here through zoom but it's um it has a little more presence to mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. and it has a little better rejection and everybody seems to really like it. So I think we have another winner here. One of the things as the, the sound engineer that I, because I, I tend to do that side of things a lot, um, I have noticed a fair amount of hand noise with most singers when they hold it. What's yeah. the answer to that? PR 37. Awesome. <laughs> That's good yeah, to we know. we corrected that too. Awesome. That, that's good. I, I, I absolutely love the sound of them. And of course, the PR40 that I use every day here mm -hmm. and love it. Um, 
why did you need to create a new microphone? Because everything out there is subpar. <laughs> and most people use it because of ego. Oh, it's been around for 65 years and I might as well use it because whoever, whoever uses it. Mm -hmm. And what they don't understand is you see some of the broadcasters that, that have uh, like RE20s and SM7s. What you don't understand is they got $5,000 worth of processing behind them. Mm, right. You don't know that from listening, but it's true. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to do something that didn't need all of that processing. And I was incredibly blessed by a guy by the name of Paul Clips so many, many years ago. Paul called me. I was right in the height of my sound reinforcement days. And he called me one day. He wanted to come and see a 10,000-watt PA. He'd never seen one. <laughs> Paul is the father of the folded horn. He also, he, he was really the, the startup of the hi-fi revolution in the late 40s. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's just a master. And, and just I couldn't believe when he called me and wanting to see if he could come and, and talk to me. And that he did. He flew his Bonanza airplane up to see me. And we went through a lot of things. He's asking a lot of questions. Why'd you do this? Why'd you do that? You know, what college did you go to? Or I barely made it through high school because I already had a career for three years, making quite a bit of money as a kid playing the theater organ at, at the Fox in St. Louis and very various restaurants and things around the area. So I really didn't need, I didn't think, as it turned out, no, because at the same time, I was 15, I got my ham radio license, and a lot of people say, what's that all about? Well, it was my college education. Mm. I learned so much from that, and still do today. <clears throat> but Paul got me involved uh, in, in something that I'd never known, and, and very few do, and they should. But you don't read about it unless you really dig into it. And what I'm talking about is back in the 1920s, they started the uh, the telephone system. And they ran two wires from New Jersey out to California. And every 50 miles, they had a relay station. Kept the frequency up, the voltage up. Everything was fine. When they turned the first uh, telephone system on, uh, this is what they heard. Like, what happened? <laughs> they couldn't figure it out because everything was balanced and all that went down the line. Each one of those test stations was okay. What happened? So they put 4,000 scientists on the case. 4,000 of them. And two of them, the lead, were uh, two guys by the name of Dr. Fletcher and Dr. Munson. And what they discovered was monumental. The problem wasn't in this, the uh, telephone system. The problem was the human ear. We don't hear flat. We don't, we don't 
hear certain frequencies well. And then they de de they, they, the defining part of it was they discovered, they being 4,000 scientists, <laughs> every once in a while I'll get somebody who want to argue about that. I don't think you're going to argue with 4,000 Bell Lab scientists. <laughs> <clears throat> they discovered for us to have articulation of the human voice, we needed in between 2 and 3K risen. And yet you have the guy, oh, it's got to be flat. No, it does not. Because if, it, if it's flat, then this is what you're going to sound like. You like that? No, you don't. <laughs> well, you have to elevate 2.5K is what I just did for you. It's all I did. I did not mm -hmm. turn the bass up. I didn't touch the top, uh, the, up in the top end. I just, I, I just uh, took out 2.5K. And listen how important that is. It, it's where all the articulate frequencies are. We're talking about the F and an S. If you don't have 2.5K, the F and the S all sound alike. Mm -hmm. There's no articulation there. And so you put it back in, and there you go. Now the F and the S are very predominant. Well, I knew that at all my life, well, since 72, all my life in the sound reinforcement business. And it was interesting, after I met up with Paul, he took me down to Hope, Arkansas, his home, and we, uh, it, was, it was a total rebuild of what I thought I knew about audio. And once I, I, I started really diving into what he told us, Hmm. My sound system became a lot better because they were more articulate. They had much more presence. So you were so you were tuning of, the speakers and the amplifiers. The e what, what were you doing specifically? Equalization of mm -hmm. what went into those speakers. Speakers weren't the problem. They could do anything you want to feed them. They were all JBL, uh, high end. Uh, high-powered stuff that wasn't that it all starts at the microphone do not ever forget that it all starts at the microphone we didn't have good microphones and so we had to really crank and make that articulation come forth with articulated uh, equalizers that we could we could change and and then came the parametric and that that changed the whole world for me and uh, it it's all about equalization but so many people they don't they don't they don't find that out till much later and that's mm -hmm. really sad but uh, i was very blessed that paul called me that was the <laughs> that was the crazy part so is it so, so looking at that, I mean, to get to that point, how, how were you even known in the industry at that point? Wh what got you there? <clears throat> well, it was pretty interesting. We, uh, I, I started out with a little music shop. Uh, well, you back up. I, I was a theater organist. I started playing professionally when I was 14. And, wow. Um, where, where at? I, I started in a restaurant in Freeburg, Illinois. Really? Is 14-year-old come play the, the organ for us? Well, 
Mary Valentine, who that was her restaurant, she went to grade school with my mother. Okay. And when I was 12 years old, I'd been playing the accordion. I think everybody played the accordion in the fifties <laughs> and uh, I did pretty good with it. But my parents thought we should get one of these Hammond organs. They had a, a special Hammond organ that came out. They had taken a court an accordion and the, uh, put the buttons and the keyboard side by side. And, uh, it was 900 bucks, big deal. Lots of advertising on it. This was back 1950 now. Mm -hmm. So in 52, my mother went to buy one of those and this God bless the salesman. <laughs> uh, <laughs> She came home and told my father that she'd bought the organ, but it wasn't $900. It was $2,500. Oh, that's a little different. She bought a B3 for me. Ooh, well, that's and a standard I, uh, now. I, I, I started teaching myself by listening to George Wright, Jesse Crawford, Lynn Larson, all these great theater organists. Mm. And I taught myself. And... Uh, so you taught yourself that based on your accordion playing? Yes. Yes. I had a lovely, wonderful, God bless him. I wish he was still here so he could have seen what happened to me. He said, well, you, after we bought the organ, I was still taking a few lessons. Uh, he said, well, if you, you're going to play the organ, you need to know what's behind all those buttons. Because when you put those buttons on an accordion, play chords, three and four notes at a time, <clears throat> you need to know what those buttons are. Mm. And he taught me. He had a very unique way. He should have been a wealthy man. <clears throat> he had a system of teaching chords, anybody, n musical or not, anybody in about five minutes could learn every chord. Really? You, you would know that. And so when I got into the organ, I had this, I really had a good left hand because I had all of the chord things mm -hmm. going on and that's what you do with your left hand. <clears throat> and I got complimented. I, I got complimented a lot as a young organist and still even today, like, wow, where'd you learn that left hand? <laughs> and that was it. And then, uh, I, I got together, I was playing in, in this restaurant in Freeburg, Illinois. And, uh, a guy came there one night, God bless him, he uh, had dinner, and when he left, he gave me a card. He said, you got to call this guy. He might be able to help you further your, your studies in your organ, because he knew I was young. And it was Stan Can's phone number. I didn't know who it was. It was a phone number. So my mother called the next day, and it was Stan. Stan Can was a celebrity in St. Louis. He played... Uh, every noon during the week on KSD, NBC television. I had a thing called To the Ladies. Uh, uh, Charlotte Peters, she sang, and he <laughs> played the B3 for her. And um, so everybody in St. Louis knew him. But she called and he said, oh, I can't teach. I don't teach. I don't know. Where'd you get this number? And she thought, well, I don't know why he would give it to you because I don't teach. And she said, well, uh, Bobby's 15 and he's doing pretty well, but bring him up there. I'll listen to him. So that was another crazy thing. Cause we went into the studio of KSD television. I mean, a little kid from Marissa, Illinois, walk into the television mm -hmm. studio. And, um, after the show, 
why he sat me down at that very organ that I saw every day on the show. Oh, man. And I sit down and I played a couple of them. He said, just a minute. And he moved me off the bench. He said, because I was playing pretty good, knew all the chords. Mm-hmm. And I knew, he said, do it this way. And that started our friendship and our relationship with Stan Cannon. He taught me for a year at that studio after the uh, TV show. And he was styling me. That's what he really was doing because mm-hmm. I knew the chords. He was amazed about that, but he was teaching me more to do with my left hand. Mm. So, so more with more feel, like you were yes. getting some some groove, right? And it, like counter melodies mm-hmm. and things like that. And then after about a year, he said, "Well, he said uh, we won't be doing this anymore." And he didn't charge me. That was a wild thing, <laughs> but he saw something in this little kid. He said, Mrs. Heil, can you bring him to the Fox Theater next week? Well, I know where that is. Well, we walked into the back of the Fox Theater, and I'm going to tell you, that was an amazing time. I'll never forget it because the Fox is a gorgeous, Mm. opulent, old movie theater. And uh, they had a Wurlitzer there, and Stan had just gotten a deal. It hadn't been played in 20 years. And he made a deal with the Fox that we could uh, play this thing. and But it, it needed to be tuned and voiced. It hadn't been played in 20 years. And he, that's why he got me in that he wanted me to become an assistant to play. But that wasn't a big deal. The big deal was he wanted me to help him voice and tune that organ. That was the deal. And I uh, I just can't tell you how incredible that was because voicing is a very interesting thing. Anybody can tune octaves. Mm-hmm. That's not a big deal. But what he taught me was how to listen we had to voice these pipes and that was where the listening came into being. And so we got, uh, we got on to playing and listening and learning more. There were 3,500 or more pipes in that thing. Wow. And, and so it was a, it was a situation that had I, had I known, but it was going to be my college education and it would be the foundation of what I would be uh, caring for years later. Mm-hmm. And it was all about that crazy organ. And uh, I still play there. I still play. Like uh, now? Theaters. Like currently um, you still do that? Well, I'm not since not COVID. But... Not since COVID. Yeah. But, That's uh, not a it, small organ. Y- yeah. Holy it's, cow. Uh, four manual Wurlitzer and... I couldn't even reach to some of the keys on it. There were 256 stop tablets on it. So and, the, the uh, picture thousands. you're showing me is from 1956. Yeah. Um, you're a young man there. <laughs> 15. Um, was that a performance? That was. Wow. My dad hid underneath the grand piano in the down. That was just <laughs> coming up out of the pit. That was an organ that. Uh, it, it was on a riser, but it went down under the stage and right midway in my back, you can see like a, a lighter, mm-hmm. but that's yep. the stage. Oh, and I was coming up from the basement. Mm-hmm. 
What, know, was it um, like dead center in the theater? Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> and my dad had hid underneath the grand piano as I came up and took that picture. That's so cool. <laughs> I was 15. That is crazy. Is that, is but that I, organ I still played, there? You know, all over the country. And uh, I have one about 20 feet in front of me and uh, huh. in this new studio. So that's awesome. What I have in front of me is interesting. It is a digitally sampled Wurlitzer. So the, the tactile the, buttons are the same, correct? Keys and all the switches? The same. But it's all everything digital inside? Yeah, they, uh, uh, they're exactly the same. However, Lynn Larson, he's the prolific theater organist of the day. He made a, a deal about 10 years ago with Allen Organ. Allen built uh, electronic organs. Mm-hmm. They went around to 24 different organs, Wurlitzer's. Martins, all of these great theater. He knew where the best pipes were because he played concerts in all of them. One of them would have a better trumpet. One would have a better clarinet. One would have a better tibia, that kind of thing. Mm. And they would sample them. And that's what I have here. It's a sampled word. It has 10 speakers and two subwoofers. And it is absolutely (laughs) outrageous because it it's scary how good it sounds i swear really? it sounds exactly like the pipe organ because it is it's a sampled wurlitzer that's amazing and i just i played about a half hour while ago i'm doing some videos that we're putting up on the, the internet okay i did a, a couple of songs and recorded them that's but i cool. love playing i love playing for people and uh what can i say but that what you're looking at is my college education. Between That's... that and Paul Clips is how I learned how to listen, learn how to do things, and make things sound better. So when mm. we come back to microphones, yeah, of course, we did all the sound systems to start with. Our sound systems were incredible. And uh, Were they all custom built? What's that? We're, we're all, like when you built mixers, were they custom built for the client? Or, or did no, you do were, production runs? Them. Okay. We built them. We had 35 people working in our plan. And uh, what happened there was I uh, uh, I got into ham radio big time. At the same time, I was at the Fox. Mm. That was also an incredible thing. That was It was an education. And along with that, I was still doing the pipe organ. Both of these were happening at the same time. I got a job at the Holiday Inn in St. Louis at the airport in 1959. <laughs> it was the largest Holiday Inn in the chain. Mm. Had six, uh, 600 rooms on one floor. And I got a job. There was a four-star German restaurant there, and I built a pipe organ and put it in that restaurant. And we had busloads of organ fanatics all over the country would come and spend the weekend at the uh, St. Louis Holiday Inn and get to hear the theater organ and have a great four, four-star German restaurant meal. It was wonderful. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, it was just way beyond what I would ever think was going to happen. But then I got tired. I'd been playing for 14 years, six nights a week. I'm going, wait a minute. <laughs> so I started a music shop in our hometown of Marissa, Illinois. Is it and still there today or no? No, no. Hmm. Actually, the music shop was a thing where I, I, this is 1966. 
I became a Hammond organ dealer there. This okay. sounds crazy, but it's true. I hardly knew who the Beatles were because <laughs> I was engrossed. I, everything I did was theater organ, mm -hmm. everything. So I, I, I had this music shop. I was selling a lot of Hammond organs to people's homes. It was a big deal in the 60s to have a B3 Hammond organ in your house. Tell me you have one currently. Uh, do what? Tell me you do have one. No, I don't. Oh, I have that man. one. <laughs> well, that was amazing. But <laughs> yeah. But anyway, I uh, I started doing that. One mm -hmm. day, a kid come into the store shortly after it opened, and he said, you fix things here? And I said, I do. <laughs> he said, uh, see what you can do here. And he set this thing on the, on the counter. It was a guitar amp. I'd never seen it. I never heard much about him. But when he turned it upside down, I looked at it, had a pair of 6L6 tubes and 5U4. Hey, good grief. That's what's in one of my transmitters. Mm -hmm. I knew the circuit well. Hams don't, we don't throw anything away. <laughs> I still had some tubes and parts, of course. I was right. still very active. And in about 20 minutes, I had his amp fixed, replaced the tubes. I knew the screen resistors were going to be shot, which they were. And he was on his way. He was amazed. Well... All of a sudden, <laughs> he went talking. around telling these guys, "Woo, there's this guy and Marissa's got a soldering iron. Mm -hmm. And we started having all kinds of kids were still in high school. then. Michael McDonald, REO Speedwagon, Mike, uh, they, they would come to Marissa and I would help them with their instruments. I, I got it. I got the message really quick. I needed to know what amps and guitars and all that. We become the largest sun amplifier dealer in the world. Wow. And uh, had all kinds of guitars. And we wouldn't have one or two Les Pauls. We'd have six of them, different colors, left, right-handed. And the word got out. But the B word was, at that time, uh, music shops, they, they didn't like these these rock and roll, long hair, they ain't got any money, right? Well, I got news for them. They did. <laughs> they were wonderful people if yeah. you got to know them. But they were selling trumpets and trombones to the school bands. Mm -hmm. Didn't know anything about rock and roll. It was terrible music. But I looked at it on the other side. Wait a minute. These guys, they need help because I know what it is. Mm -hmm. When you're you're entertaining and you're out in front of a, an audience and all of a sudden you get this horrible feeling in your stomach when something doesn't work or sound right. Ah. Yep. Well, I knew that feeling and these guys had the same thing, but nobody was helping them. So we became one of the largest music shops in the country very quickly. So were you a destination shop then? Like, did it turn oh, into that? People came, they came from England. Really? <laughs> they came from Canada. They came from all over because there was this guy. Here's what the deal was. I had all of these high-priced instruments. They were things that were, you, you never saw. You had to order them and wait. Well, there you are. There's a $3,500 Martin. This is in 1967 <laughs> and eight and nine. Yeah. And they'd look at it. And I had them hung all over the walls. Because, I mean, this thing grew pretty quick. And uh, I had stools I could sit around. And and one he's ogling at that guitar. I said, here, you want to try it? Oh, you know, really? I didn't care. I'd take it down, put it on his lap. And 
there'd be three or four of them at, at the same time, all playing different instruments, just having a ball <laughs> because they finally found a music shop that allowed them mm -hmm. to play and to pick out what they wanted. Yeah. Yeah. I had all these Les Pauls, but to the really schooled guitarist, they didn't all sound the same. There would be one just a little better than the other. I mean, that's true. It's true with organs. Mm -hmm. B3s all sounded different. Most people didn't think so, but I did. I could pick them out. <laughs> so anyway, that really was the basis of all this where bands were coming to me. Mm -hmm. And in 1968, I got a call from the Fox Theater again. I hadn't been playing there in seven years. George Bales was the stage manager and says, hey, hi, you might want something. We're putting in a new sound system here and we're tossing out a bunch of these old speakers. Come on up here. So I did. They had 1932 or three Olsen bins. Harry Olsen had designed these big folded horns for theaters. Mm -hmm. Well, they were changing them out because they were old. So I got a pickup truck. I went up there and I, I got them. <laughs> I have four of them. Wow. I, I built a sound system around them. They were strictly low end. I mean, you talk about subwoofers. <laughs> you think you have a subwoofer? No, you don't. <laughs> How big were they? Those How big were, those? were subwoofers. They were 16 foot folded horns oh, man. and they weren't pushed. Today, subwoofers are done by equalization and cramming them into a box mm -hmm. no this was the real deal and uh, uh so i built this sound system and i didn't know I, I didn't know because at the time to me I, I really wasn't engrossed in the rock scene just yet but it was a big hi-fi system for me mm -hmm. but the fox called and said uh, come and get him well i did well I was taking, I was renting Hammond organs to like the arena and the, uh, the old dome where the, the blues were playing hockey and all this stuff. And they would have Nashville artists come and play in these things. And I was renting Hammond organs and I found out, man, the PA and these things are terrible. Little bitty columns about three foot high. You're going to fill a 10,000 seat. <laughs> I don't think so. So, on a couple of those shows, I took some of that sound system up there and everybody went freako. So I was really happy. So so you're like the the reason that we have big concert sound now. I mean, really? Well, were, were you the first to do it? Pretty much so. Mm -hmm. Because the next thing that happened to me in 1970, the Fox called me again. Hey, Heil. It's George Spales. You still have those speakers? I said, I do. Do they work? I said, sure. He said, talk to this guy. We got we got a real disaster here. This group, this group came in today, and their sound system didn't make it. It got confiscated. I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, the FBI uh, took it last night from them. I said, what are we talking about? Here, you better talk to this guy. That guy was Jerry Garcia of the Grateful Dead. <laughs> did you, you know, know anything? Did you know the you Grateful know Dead? Uh, if you know anything about rock history, you you know where I'm going with this. 
I told Jerry what I had. You got Macintosh amps? Yes, sir. Oh, my. Get that thing up here. JBL speakers, Olsen bins. Oh, my gosh. Well, I did. We went there. And the story is, if you don't know the story, it's very interesting. Owsley was their sound man. He was one of the innovators okay. of LSD. Ah. And Owsley, <laughs> he... he he bought and put together all his sound system and he was on probation. He was supposed to be out of California. So mm. they were going to do this short little tour, New Orleans, St. Louis, out to New Jersey. Nobody know this out in the Midwest. They don't know who we are. Well, the DEA knew who they were and they were watching them. <laughs> so the DEA and the FBI go to the warehouse in New Orleans, sat in the back row after the show that night. Mm-hmm. The band comes on to St. Louis. They didn't have cell phones. They said, hey, we'll see you at the Fox. Okay. <clears throat> Owsley, when he finished loading the truck, hello, goodbye. <clears throat> uh, they took him and the truck off to California. So when when Garcia and the guys get on the stage at the Fox the next afternoon, where's Owsley? Where, where? So they call back on the landline <clears throat> to, to their office in San Rafael. He's in jail. Now what are we going to do? And enter George Bales and me. And there was a guy there that night. I never met him, but I knew he had to be there. He wrote an article called The Night Rock and Roll Sound Was Born. Hmm. Put this into Google and you <laughs> will discover that that was the night. And, and from there, it all went pretty crazy. Because everybody was after me because I was building all this big stuff. But we became very, very good friends with Jerry. He would come to Marissa. He and Pig Ben and Bob Weir, they'd come to Marissa from <laughs> San Rafael because I could help them. Mm -hmm. They finally found a guy that didn't think they were stupid and crazy. I was helping them because I was fascinated that I had something that these guys could use. And, mm -hmm. and it was wonderful. Everybody I worked for, if I couldn't be a friend of them, I didn't want to know about them because there were some I turned down, <laughs> some pretty big ones. No, big, big ones. <laughs> because I'm a straight man in a crazy world, I guess. Mm -hmm. I have never in my 80 years tasted beer. I've never smoked anything. I've never done any kind of drugs. And so what do you do? Huh? <laughs> you don't fit in, Bob. <laughs> the fact is that they knew that all the groups I worked with, but mm -hmm. they respected me yeah. because I had a soldering iron and I could help them, but I also respected them. Yeah. They needed help. I knew that. And it was another piece of history. Uh, my music shop <clears throat> was the, uh, that was the name of everything we had to pay. We had uh, stenciled on all the cases and the speakers. It was the old music shop. Well, about uh, two dates into this tour, after we left out of St. Louis, I didn't go on it because I had to take care of things at the store, but my roadies did. Another blessing. I had two roadies in Carbondale, Illinois, that 
were Grateful Dead fans. They knew every <laughs> piece, all of it. Well, that helped because they could mix. Yeah. They knew the songs. So it was all God sent to us. It's all happened. And somewhere uh, through that tour, uh, a couple of days later, I get a call from Jerry and he said, uh, Heil, well, what is this ye old music shop thing? I said, well, that's the name of my store. So we were having trouble pronouncing all of that. We're just going to call you Heil Sound. Is that okay? And so it is Jerry Garcia really named, named Heil Sound. And you get it. Well, that's stupid. Heil, that's your name. You would called. No, it was called, it was known to many at the time as the old music shop. So mm. there you are. That article <laughs> appeared in Billboard. This is where it happened. Everybody was calling me. We're talking Jeff Beck, Humble Pie, Joan Baez, Jethro Tall, Beach Boys, on and on and on. And it's just a few of them. And I was the guy that actually started a tour situation. Until that time, the bands would all have Volkswagen vans and each one have a pickup truck or mm -hmm. a car and they'd put certain things in there and they'd never get there at the right time or the, together. Some <laughs> wouldn't get there at all. It was crazy time. I said, we're not going to do that. Uh, uh. So I leased a 40 foot semi and a licensed driver. We bought an old Greyhound bus. We could sleep 11 people in it and away we went. And so we were, really some of the first doing tours one of the first tours i did this is kind of fun and one of the first tours i did was easy top their management called me after all the articles on i got this band they're really loud we need we need to talk i said well we can probably do your stuff and we did their tours for years that is a picture of their first hmm. job in an outdoor park that ZZ Top without beards. <laughs> That's not and them, then. <laughs> I, I, nice. I show that today, and people have to yeah. double. But when you look at it again, that's Billy Gibbons. Oh, yeah. Where's the yep. other doing microphones? And, that's awesome. You know, on and on. And mm -hmm. that that really started it, because from there, it went crazy. Well, the Who called me you know, with them for, for uh, six years, and we started a plant... Uh, opened a plant that we had 35 people working in this plant building amplifier speakers my brother-in-law ran the wood shop and uh, we were just doing all kinds of things we were doing a lot of festivals and uh, then i wrote the book the practical guide for concert sound which really helped a lot of of people get started because there was nothing mm -hmm. it wasn't a thing man to learn how to be an a sound engineer well they could and many of them did i even see guys today that thank me because they've had a great career because of that book and um you know we did all kinds of things and then i did um, early on before all of that even i got with joe walsh and the james gang chose a ham wb6acu well here we are two guys we were having great fun uh, with the James gang and we're still great friends, but he, um, he recorded Rocky mountain away in, in Nashville, uh, Bob, uh, Bill and Dottie West were good friends of his. And uh, they did this, uh, his first, uh, uh, Rocky mountain away 
did that in the studio of, of uh, Pete Drake. He was a very, very predominant steel guitar player. And he had this little box. He was a gadgeteer freak like most of us. He put a little three-inch speaker in it and had a little funnel, and he had a hose on it. And he put it in his mouth, and he could make kind of wah-wah mm -hmm. weird sounds with it from his guitar because his guitar amp was plugged into it. That's what Joe recorded Rocky Mountain Way with. But we're putting together Barnstorm in our plant in Marissa, getting ready to go out on tour. What are we going to do with that box thing? We got to have something that's live. What are you going to do? And so we developed the Heil Talk Box. I had no idea where this was going, but I did I did it for Joe. And you all know. You've heard it. You know what? That, that was just a wonderful, mm -hmm. wonderful time. And it's a whole long story, but I gave one to Peter Frampton for a Christmas present. And, uh, that was you a good idea. That, <laughs> that worked. <laughs> he can ask it and make it talk. Yeah. <laughs> we became really good friends and still to this state. And of course it was, it was a talk mm -hmm. box that made his career. He'll tell you that. And there were a lot of Bon Jovi and all of them. But uh, I, in 1980, I just said, okay, I'm gone. I'd had enough of all this punk rock was coming in and it wasn't the same musical things that were happening in the old days so i got into a lot of they got into uh, satellite television put in thousands of satellite televisions that was kind of fun and uh, i was on kmox radio every wednesday night for oh about 25 years talking about high-tech toys and all that we called it high-tech heil and that was all fun we got into this the into the the, the uh, satellite business and direct tv in 1991, uh, tapped me to be one of the experimental stations because they were working on the satellite to get DirecTV up. And we were the we were the first dealer for DirecTV in 1994, September. Um, it went into a home in St. Louis. The vice president of RCA came down and we were really good friends all those years with him. And uh, I was doing a lot of uh CES and NAB shows mm -hmm. and that were because I was doing home theaters. We're not talking about just a little sound system. We're talking about $300,000, $150,000 rooms of, with high def. Uh, and it, this is 1986, seven, mm -hmm. I'm there. This is high definition uh, projectors. These things are $20,000 a piece. We had uh, uh, the only thing we could play were laser discs. But I was doing a lot of them, uh, and I worked with Paul uh, Ray Dolby. Uh, he uh, sent, he gave me his ProLogic receiver. He had one prototype, and we started uh, using that on all of our theaters and getting the word out about that. But it just went crazy. I, I did so many other things in those days, but it it all come down to, to ham radio, and uh, I. My my career as a sound engineer was was great fun because some of the people we work with were f also mm -hmm. really great fun. Yeah, and um, we're still doing them today, but today we're doing them with microphones, and that's all because of Joe. I hadn't really thought about any uh, entertainment stuff 
after I sold the company and got into home theater and more active in ham radio, we're the largest manufacturer of headphones and microphones for that industry. But in 2006, Joe sat me down and he at his kitchen table, Studio City said, we need a better microphone. And so we started talking about what he wanted. Mm-hmm. And we came up with the with the PR40. Uh, these are microphones that have 40 dB rear rejection. No other microphone has it. This is a microphone that's omni on the front. You don't have to be stuck like these ball mic things. And they don't have to be equalized very hard because I already pre-equalized it for you. And uh, we have a custom shop where we can do just about anything. Uh, when Carrie Underwood goes out with those beautiful dresses, we build microphones to match her dresses. And all <laughs> kinds of people, Keith Urban, uh, just Stevie, uh, slashed. And these are all people that we work with and, and build microphones. We did all the, the microphones for Last Man Standing. You know, they had on that TV set, they had a ham radio station that I helped put together. That's actually a working station, isn't it? Oh, yeah. After after uh, each Tuesday when they'd have a uh, uh, do uh, record the set, uh, I think like 13 or 14 of the uh, uh, the staff, they got their ham radio license. So they'd get on the air and have a big wing ding. <laughs> That's awesome. Talk. And we even got so involved that I convinced Tim Allen to get his amateur radio really? license. Yeah, and it, it's just kind of fun. That's awesome. But from there, this new microphone thing came about. The broadcasters love it because mm-hmm. of the rear rejection and the fact they don't have to equalize it much. Yeah. All of the other things, the RE20s, SM7, you got to equalize the heck out of them. Sirius Radio just bought 250 of them. I Does saw that. that. Tell you yeah, that, that's pretty Does fascinating. That tell you something? Mm-hmm. And we went on to build a copy uh, of the uh, uh, the old RCA, uh, they called it the Pill microphone, which was their 77D set on Johnny Carson's desk for years. It was the microphone for recording. But uh, other than that, we built things for the ham radio operators. It was very, very, very affordable. I took a PR40 and rolled off the low end a little bit because that 40 gets down to 28 cycles. Mm-hmm. We don't need that in ham radio, so I rolled it off at 50, stuff like that. A lot of recording studios are using our stuff today. And we're just, we're very blessed because all of this, all of this came about because of ham radio. So, Bob, why are Heil mics not included in a lot of the microphone shootouts that are put out by some of the bigger companies? Is it all money? Well, no, it's the fact that they, uh, they regard me as a a microphone for ham radio. Mm. They don't understand, but those that do really know. Totally. Yeah. and I really don't care. I'll put the PR40 against any dynamic microphone and they will lose. And a lot of them know that. And a lot of them will not go up against the 40. Mm-hmm. That's a true story. Well, I know I love it. I think it's fantastic. I, I first saw it um, because Leo Laporte uses them. That's right. And they're all over his studio. And I and then that's where I saw you. I thought, well, shoot, I got to get that. Because, I mean, Leo's got a voice that sounds like butter anyway. So, yes. <laughs> and that mic just makes it even better. Yeah. Um, so yeah. before you guys have to roll, I have, I have one question and it's off topic, but 
you have a very distinct look, and I love it. The, the shirts you use are wild. Um, <laughs> when did that start? <laughs> just Robert Graham. Uh, actually, when we we had a home in California, went out to help Joe for a number of years. It was like 2004 or five. Worked in a lot of the studios, mm-hmm. uh, helping guys learn about Heil Sound. And how I do that is I just go into these studios. When I designed the PR40 and the, uh, a lot of them, they would fit an Electra Voice uh, mount. And I would... Oh take their PR, their uh, other thing, the electric voice and toss it aside <laughs> and drop in the PR 40. And they're going, what the heck just happened here? Well, it just happened is mm-hmm. a new technology. Mm-hmm. The RA things were designed in 1965 by a ham, Al Khan knew him well. Mm. And it was okay for then, but it never changed. It got worse. Cause now they're made in China. Really? Like, come on, buy one, buy that. They got that new black thing. Yeah. I, I bought one to see what it was here some years ago. Made in China, right on the box. Come mm. on. Wow. I have parts made all over the world. Yeah. Most of mine are made in Malaysia. I have some in Taiwan. We have some in England. And it, there are things coming out of India these days. There's all kinds of them. Mm. They're all shipped into our plant in Fairview Heights, just across the river from St. Louis Arch. We put them together and test them, and away we go. So you guys assemble and menu and do everything yeah. there. Yeah. So everything is put yeah. together in your shop. Exactly. That's awesome. And, what is uh, what is your favorite mic that you've made? Oh golly, it's hard to say. <laughs> I guess the different Actually, uses, but when I what I use on ham radio most of the time is a PR twenty two, and mm-hmm. I did that. Paul Rogers. We were working with Paul. Let me unplug this. We were working with Paul in the uh, Fender Center uh, out in California. And he was having, I think it was his 40th anniversary. And they want, were the microphone as the Rock Hall in Cleveland. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, mm-hmm. we're the only manufacturer there, but they also use our microphones for their radio network and okay. all of that on Sirius. That's how Sirius yeah. learned about it. <laughs> but anyway, um, we did a, a, a little show in California at the Fender Center with Paul, and he uh, he heard the, the, the PR-22, and he said, what is that thing? Whoa, there was no EQ. I didn't turn anything when I plugged into this. Listen how this thing sounds. Try that with your ball mic. You got to <laughs> equalize it to get that yeah. articulation. Articulation is so, so important. And I don't know. Are these guys not listening? They're million-dollar engineers. Where are you? And so I, I attribute all of that listening from the pipe organ days listening mm-hmm. to harmonics of all those different pipes even as i play just a few hours ago i was playing i have to listen to different different pipes when i set up do i let's see does a four foot tibia work good with an eight foot trumpet or is it going to be an eight foot tuba <laughs> oh man <laughs> you know you have to think about that yeah and so i'm i'm i i really love 
I love the 22 for that, but I like them mm-hmm. all for their different purposes. Yeah. I, I love the 077D. I do most all of my, my uh, Zoom meetings with it, but uh, it all works well. And uh, why, uh, the, well, why do you hate condensers so much? Because they're too <laughs> sensitive. Yeah. They're too sensitive. Is, is there a place? The whole room. Yeah. Is there a place for them? Maybe in a cardboard box. <laughs> no, but like, like in a studio serious. setting, like are they? Would that be a place for them, or are they just should they all go away and dynamics should be it? No, there are times for big orchestras, hmm. but okay. it has to be in a room that's tailored. You can't just put them in a gymnasium because <laughs> they'll pick up everything. That's, you know, you have to be aware. Mm-hmm. But I, I just had a guy the other day. Guy's a recording dude out of New Jersey. And he got a hold of the PR30s. Oh. And he's replaced all of his condensers. Really? If you haven't heard a 30, man, what's wrong? The 30 is truly amazing. Why? It, 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 it's silky. Huh. Like like the uh, uh the condenser things hmm. but i the the reason i don't like them the rear rejection is forget it yeah and that is why when i walk into radio studios it's got their neumanns and their whatevers and i unplug that thing turn off the phantom power mm-hmm. and plug in a pr40 or 30 they go what just happened here because i didn't touch anything yeah and it, it's it's an amazing thing hmm. and and that is why but people use condensers and they just pick all the crap up that we don't want mm-hmm. that's what i've done here and it's all about phasing i am a phasing nut and i'm a phasing nut because of ham radio so do you, are there two capsules back to back in your mind. No, uh-uh. no, 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 no. I did it very special. First of all, the capsule itself. The element itself is interesting in that I uh the I really got the idea to do this from Joe. We're sitting at his kitchen table. He says, I want to get rid of all those guys behind me, you know, that mm-hmm. the rear rejection. Build a microphone you can do that with. And I used to have at one time I had a huge antenna. This thing was, it was 40 foot wide and 20 foot high. I was in 50 foot in the air. And it was serious, serious, serious. Wow. Antenna. And Joe, he said, well, sitting in these kitchen tables, you know, when I come through there in the bus back in the day, you turn that antenna around, I couldn't hear you. Do that to my microphone. Hmm. Cause nobody else has, you cannot argue with this. You can argue with your ego and I like that brand, yeah. but you can't, you cannot argue with how it performs. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking in a 40 right now. It's 90 degrees from me. I move it in my front of my mouth. I go another, it's 180 degrees yeah. and you never lost any audio. Try that on your ball mic. <laughs> and here goes the biggie. When I talk into the back of it, yeah, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. 
and that nobody has anything to do with that. Yeah. They don't understand it. And that's how we did it. And it's, it's done with one capsule and that's some magic. No, it's done amazing. Here, I'll let you really hear what's going to go on. Um, let me put this down. I wish you guys could see the wall of fun behind Bob right now in his <laughs> in his studio. <laughs> it just looks like a playland in there. Okay, here we go. I have two PR twenty twos. Okay. Yeah, they're different colors. Big deal. And when I talk into both of them, mm -hmm. they're in phase, so they've worked well. They went up 3 dB. If you double the power, it went up 3 dB. Okay, okay. But what happens if I take one of these microphones out of phase? And I'm doing that for one of them right now. I have a very special plug that I made. Pin 3 is hooked to 2, and 2 is hooked to 3. Here we go. I love teaching about phasing. These are the two microphones. When I talk into the, the black one, no mm -hmm. problem. Talk into the red one, no problem. Well, wait a mm -hmm. minute. Hiya, one of them's out of phase. Yeah, that's all right. Until you talk into both of them, because when I bring them both together, they cancel. Here we go. One, two, three. That's crazy. Oh, they still work, but when I put them together, gone. <laughs> what happens? These other manufacturers, God, they got million dollar engineers. What's wrong with you guys? They have four little holes three o'clock, six o'clock, nine o'clock, twelve o'clock. Little bitty eighth inch holes around the edge of their elements. Mm -hmm. That's the entrance for the rear rejection. <laughs> that gets under the, that's in the bottom of okay. the element and that would in the back would be out of phase. Mm -hmm. That's all they have. That's why they only have 10, 10 15 DB of rear rejection. What's wrong with you guys? My elements, I open the whole bottom of it, not four little holes. And all of this rear comes screaming up into the bottom of the element. And gets canceled and out. That diaphragm sees the same from the front. Hello. When you do them together. Mm -hmm. Hello. Goodbye. <laughs> and I just, I do this for all the, these different things I, I've been doing since last March. Uh, I've done 200 uh, workshops. And wow. Some of them go two hours long for ham radio guys. But uh, I've done a few for audio guys because there's, you, you can't, you, you can't ever do enough. So, so the theory with that is when the same sound hits both sides of that, it does, it goes away, correct? Yep. Very simple. Okay. Very simple. Well, and I don't understand so <laughs> why somebody yeah. didn't figure it out. It was two ham radio operators figured it out. Neither one of us know square R cubed <laughs> plus 72 equals 140 right. or whatever all that stuff is. Yeah. It was very interesting at a NAM show recently. Bob Shuline, 
he was a good friend of mine when he was the main engineer at Shure for a lot, for a lot of years. When I was on the road, I would work with him because I, I didn't have microphones and he'd help me. He comes waltzing into our booth at NAM, and he had a sticker. It said consultant. What are you talking about? <laughs> You're the chief. No, they fired me. They fired you. Really? Got kind of emotional. He said, they told me they don't need me anymore. Oh. You think about that a minute. Hmm. I haven't done anything new. Oh, yeah. I got to. No, they painted it different colors. But as far as, as technology, they haven't done anything new. So move out. There's a new sheriff in town. Hmm. And our buggy's moving really fast. <laughs> well, that is and he so wanted cool. To know, first of all, he wanted to know how I got that large diaphragm to work because he was supposed to do that and they, he failed. And then that's the PR40 diaphragm, right? Yeah. So how'd you do that? And uh, I didn't tell him because it's kind of a secret <laughs> of how we got that. Because the large diaphragm, it's like wings on a bird they, mm -hmm. out on the edges. They just tilt down. Well, in fact, when Joe and I were talking about this, he said, why don't you do this, do that, make, make it bigger. I said, then it's going to just fold it the, out at the edges. Mm -hmm. Well, just make it thicker. Well, if you do that, the highs are gone. That was my job for about a year to figure that out. And I did, and nobody knows it but me. <laughs> <laughs> Even the people that work for me, nice. it's okay. The people that put it together, did, hey, it's an element. It put works, it right? But anyway, well, that's uh, great. I, uh, I, I didn't understand what they they do these things and they get all these righteous things happening. Everybody just thinks they're lovely. Mm -hmm. No, well, no. is that because they have all the cash for marketing? Y yeah, that's why you don't see ads from me. I don't spend it on ad. I tell you who advertises for me. Me. Oh, let's take like uh, <laughs> oh, Carrie Underwood. Yeah. And yeah. Paul Rogers. <laughs> so in in the in the artist world, are they bound to to brands like that by their labels? Or, oh yeah, or, sure. Really nails them. Really. Yeah, we don't. They come and go. I don't care hmm. because once they go with us, they stay. <laughs> They'll come back, <laughs> right? And, and it's really sad. Hmm. But uh, no, and we have a lot of major artists, so many broadcasters, and we're very blessed by that. That's very great. blessed, and of course, very honored. That, mm -hmm. uh, but but they do it because it performs. Yeah, that, that's the whole deal. Is it? It performs. Everything about what we build performs. Uh, Danny, uh, who was a uh, who is a drummer for Tool, there's another one for you. The loudest, crazy man in the world yeah. is Tool. <laughs> Adam Jones, right? That was kind of interesting. I'll tell you that story. It's really cool. We had a home in California for a while, and I get a call from Joe Barisi one day. He said, hey, hi, are you out here? Are you back in Illinois? I said, no, we're out here. Oh, thank you. He says, I got a big problem. I said, what's that? He said, Adam Jones is in the studio. They have been working for a year to try to get this one song that we could go ahead and finish the album, and they can't do it. I said, well, what can I help you with? He said, he wants to do it with your talk box. 
The drummer? Oh. No, no, no. Oh, 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 sorry. Adam okay. Jones. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I said, okay, I'll be there in an hour. And so I go down to Hollywood right next to Amoeba Records where they were recording in Joe's studio. And I took a couple of microphones with me and some other things. And uh, what we did, I watched him, he plugged his 700 watt diesel amplifier into this little 100 watt driver and it was just going crazy. I said, no, that won't work. I just can't get it to be warm, the sound. I know you can't. Here's what we're going to do. I looked around and there was a little tuning amp. I think it was a Roland or something. A little, you know, 10 watt tuning amp. I said, uh, let me see that. I go in because I had my toolkit with me. I uh, unsoldered a few wires and put them things together. Great. All right. Super. Oh my gosh. He says, is it going to be okay when you get done? He said, that's my favorite amp. I don't want, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I just put a jack in it so I could take the output of the amplifier and not the speaker. Ah. Mm -hmm. We took that, put it in there. 1000, that song 1000 was, we did it right there. Boom. Is really? <laughs> and, uh, we have been with them ever since hmm. and they are the loudest. Oh my gosh. And that's, uh, you know, that, that's how it all happens. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we, Danny carries another one. Great drummer, great drummer. And uh, we worked with him in a couple of, he did workshops back some years back and we went into these workshops with him and that's where I formulated the drum kit. I actually started it with Cheryl Crow. Uh, Sully Sullivan, who is, he's just a magnificent front of the house engineer, uh, uses our stuff. And that's another thing. A lot of times the artists, they don't know what's going on. If they got a, a Sears and Roebuck or they got mm -hmm. a, Montgomery Ward <laughs> microphone. They don't care as long as they sound good. Yeah. Well, Sully says, you make me, you make my job so much easier as did Bob Workman for Charlie Daniels on mm -hmm. it. I can name you a whole bunch of them. And, and, and that's how they get there. It's not the artists. It's the engineers. Well, <laughs> we, uh, we did this drum thing. Uh, I, I was able, we were in, um, uh, California. And I think it's Bakerfield. We were doing an outdoor gig. They were with Cheryl. All the mics were ours on stage. But I sat behind a drummer. I kind of hid back there. And mm -hmm. I had a scope. And I had an analyzer and all this. And what I was doing during the concert, I was seeing what we had to make for drum microphones. And see, that's the thing. These manufacturers, they, they do it in their, in their whatever labs. No, my lab is a stage. It always has been. Yeah. I am so blessed that they will allow me to sit behind the drummers, to sit off stage with wires and cables and stuff <laughs> and measuring right. things. Because they knew when Bob Heil happened, something mm. was going to be better. <laughs> And so that's the trick. And we did, we developed a drum kit and Danny Carey was a really big part of that. And uh, uh, several other drummers too. Wally Ingram, Wally was the, the drummer for Cheryl 
Mm. He just called me the other day. We, we stay in touch with a wonderful guy. And uh, Jackson Brown, he works for him and all kinds of stuff. But he carries his Heil microphones with him. He doesn't care what they do. You just set it up. I'll come back and put what I got. Yeah. So that's the whole story on that. And that it's not always the, the, the artist. It, it's, it's, it's happening with mm -hmm. the engineers because they're the ones that get screamed at. Well, but, didn't Bob Workman, didn't he need a shorter body? And that, that's where the BW PR 35 or PR 30 came in. That's a crazy story. The story itself is incredible. Um, uh, I was doing microphones for 38 Special. Mm -hmm. Their bass player is K4EB, a ham radio operator. <laughs> we always call him K4 Excellent Bass. And he <laughs> was using our PR40 on his ham radio. Mm. Well, one night he takes it and puts it on an amp. Forget it. Uh -huh. There will never be another microphone. And so the whole stage started being ours. They were going to play in Sykeston, Missouri. I thought, ah, come and see you guys. So we went down to Sykeston, Sarah and I. But it so happened that a couple of days before that, we had finished two prototypes of the PR-35. Mm. Okay. So I took one of them. And after the show that night, I gave one to John, their sound man. I said, here, take this on the road. This is another thing I do to my, with my prototypes. My hand-built ones. Take it on the road. Let people use think. it. Yeah. Because that live stage is Bob Hiles' lab. Mm. Yeah, I got one here, and I do. I, but that's where the rubber hits the road, baby. Mm -hmm. So the next night, they were going to open for Charlie Daniels. And the story goes, I learned about this a couple of days later. John had set everything up for a 38 special to open. And he had the he had the PR thirty five, and he he was going to use it as a talkback mic because he he wanted to do more testing before he just threw it on stage. I understood that, and so it's laying on the console. Here comes Bob Workman. He'd been with Charlie for many 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 years. I didn't never knew who he, I never knew him, <laughs> and so he goes in to do the sound check with Charlie, and he said to John, "What's that?" He said, "Oh, it's a microphone company called Heil." I've heard about that. What's it doing here? He said, oh, that's a prototype. He wanted me to try it out. And he said, well, have you, have you tried it? He said, no. Bob picks it up. He's back, you know, at the console in the middle mm -hmm. of the hall. He starts listening. He said, I've never heard my voice this good. What is this thing? <laughs> and Bob Workman will tell you this true story. He was so excited about the fact that this microphone was so much better than his ball mics. Mm -hmm. He goes and puts it on Charlie's stand and they did the whole show with a PR 35 prototype. Wow. At the end of the show. I mean, Bob, he's, I was just amazed. He said, the sound was great, but at the end of the show, he didn't even have the ring of the last symbol quiet. He gets a call on his radio, Bob Workman to Charlie Daniels bus immediately. Oh. And he's gone. Uh oh, this is the longest walk I'm ever going to take. So, you know, I could start power washing buildings. <laughs> right. Maybe I could, I don't know. I was, is this a true story? That's oh, what he man. told me. Cause he used to do power washing. He gets the, the bus and 
he said, I didn't even have my foot on the step, just partially. He starts talking. Son, what did you do to my microphone? Oh, no. <laughs> said, oh my gosh. He said, well, that's a new, he started to explain. He said, I don't want to hear it. I have never in all my performances heard my voice so good, hmm. rich, whatever he said. And Bob says, well, he said, sir, that it's, it's an, it's a company that's building microphones. Well, I want every microphone on my <laughs> stage to be that company. Wow. You got two days. He said, well, sir, we don't have a, a deal like sure. You know, that we don't have that deal. I don't care what kind of deal we got. <laughs> you pay full list for them and you have them here hmm. because sure was giving them to him. Wow. And we do that too. But in this case, you know, didn't. So workman calls me. I, I, well, he sent me an email first. I still have it because it's very precious. We've become really great friends over the years. And that's the story of how the PR 35 got launched. That's crazy. Into the arena of high dollar microphones wow. that don't perform very well. Isn't he also responsible for hacking his PR 30 in half? Well, you know, we, just, we did everything. He called me one day and said, hey, Bob, <laughs> what's in the middle of this PR 30? Mm -hmm. He loved the PR 30. I said, well, nothing. He said, it doesn't affect the sound if I'd cut it in half. I said, well, you actually don't even have to do that. You take a look at it. Yeah, I got it right here. There's three screws on the screen. Take those out and that screen will come off. Then that middle part, take the three screws out of it. Oh, it comes off. Now, take that top part and put it on the bottom part. <laughs> you said it has nothing to do with acoustics? I said, no. <laughs> That's all done in the element because it's mm -hmm. a large diaphragm mm -hmm. and the way I mount it. And so the PR31BW for Bob Workman was born. <laughs> and when you buy it, the box it comes in has got his picture and has this story told. That's cool. <laughs> but so That's many awesome. things yeah. happen like that. This wow. is just one. I am so blessed. That's so and, cool. And it's all because I listen to these guys and I try to help them. Well, I love the fact that you go out with them to hear what they hear in yeah. the environment they're in. That's huge. You ever saw an electro voice engineer or a shore engineer <laughs> go out with his gear and try to measure things? No, we do that in our lab. We don't need that. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, Bob, I really appreciate it, and I've already held you over too long. Where can people find all the info they need to about you and the company and all the things you're doing? Just go to www.hiosound.com, okay. and, and there's a lot of stuff there in the web pages. If, really, you could... If you go into YouTube, there's a bunch of things. There's some two-hour things up there from ham radio stuff. You go into YouTube and put, uh, oh, like uh, some of them would be called Optimize Your Signal Bob mm. slash Bob Heil. Mm -hmm. Just put my name. There'll be a lot of organ stuff in there, but some of those will be those. Or the best thing to do is email me. Do not be shy. Okay. Email me, Bob at Heil, H-E-I-L. Bob at HeilSound.com. Email me. Awesome. I can't so many a day, but that's okay. I will answer you. 
and I can send you some links to some of these things and uh, things you can take a good look at. But the best part is, of course, is our our website. Mm-hmm. And you'll uh, you'll see what's going on there. You'll also find some other things there. We're the only manufacturer in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Really. They have a large display, a mixer that we built for Quadrophenia. That's quite a story in itself. I didn't have time to talk about that. The monitors, we were the first people to do monitors because of phasing. When you put a monitor or speaker in front of a microphone, what do you get? Feedback. A problem. Not if you know how to do it right. Yeah. And we brought we brought monitors to this, to this uh, wonderful thing called uh, uh, entertainment. Hmm. And... Uh, the uh, the mixer, the sun mixer, we were the largest sun mixer in the world in 72, 3, 4. And I built a prototype mixer for them. And then they started producing uh, sound systems. I also, a few years back, became a, an honorary uh, PhD. Oh, that's Mizzou. right. Dr. Bob, I forgot. Yes. And it's so <laughs> crazy. I hardly made it through high school. That's amazing. I really did. I only went the number of days. I didn't care. Hmm. My grades weren't good. I didn't care. I already had a career. Wow. But I'm still there. I'm still doing things, and I'm here for you. Don't be afraid to email me, and let's talk. Hey, That's awesome. A lot of times, we'll just get on Skype if you need some help. That's so cool. And are you still doing Ham Nation? No. I Because of when we, when we start, Ham Nation ended last December. Okay. But I was starting to really fill up the calendar each night. Mm. with these uh, workshops I'm doing oh, for right. ham radio clubs. And I mean, we're doing almost four and five a week. Oh my word. It's right at 200 now since last March. I can't do all that. And I think right now I'm better off to help people. And that's mm. what these workshop uh, uh, Zoom presentations are because mm-hmm. they're learning so much about how our ears work, all of this not all, but a few of the really important things that I learned from Paul Klipsch and uh, all of those 4,000 scientists. And that's what those are all about. Wow. That's hey, cool. Hey, uh, you get four or five guys together, email me. I'll do it for four or five. The cost is the same. Zero. <laughs> wow. That's but so I amazing to you give your information will, out. Bob, you're awesome. <laughs> I will guarantee you that we will have some fun and I'm going to guarantee you that you will learn something. That's fantastic. Just as I did. And it's God's will that I come and bring this to everybody. Because yeah. for darn sure, it's not happening anywhere else. And that's, that's really sad. So mm-hmm. we want to we let you have some fun with all of it. But just remember, it all starts at the microphone. Thank you very much. How would you like for me to go over here and fire this up for a minute? Oh, do it. That'd be fantastic. (laughs) Okay. Okay. We're going to do that. I have to turn a couple of buttons here and we will do that. So bye-bye to you for now and anybody aboard. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Interview. Thanks, Bob. HeilSound.com. If you want to uh, get the best microphones out there, a little bit more from our, our impromptu little concert to close out the show. Remember, whymillbank.com is our website. Whymillbank at gmail.com is the email address if you have any questions or comments. If you want to help support the show, go to whymillbank.com, click on the podcast button, and there's a donate button there right at the top. If you got value out of this or you just want to help us continue on in this project that we're doing to, to 
talk to people around the world that have a story to tell. You can help us out. Put it in that donate button and send it our way. Everything is appreciated and welcome. If you have a story to tell, click the Tell Your Story button at the top of quietmailblink.com and put your information in there and we will certainly get back to you and see what we can do. Once again, whymillblink.com. Thank you, Bob Heil, for taking the time to sit down uh, and for creating uh, these beautiful microphones that we use so we can sound so good. Thanks a lot, Bob. Thank you all for listening. See you on the next one. Have a great day.